invite you to open your Bible this morning to the book of 1 Peter. Now, if you need a Bible this morning, slip, simply slip up your hand. Ken would be happy to see to it. Ed, Ken as well, would have to see to it that you have a Bible. Uh, I didn't get the scripture across to our uh, technician, so we're going to have to just read it out of the Bible. Oh, my goodness, right? Um, instead of off the screen. We're going to read uh, from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1, all the way through verse 5. And what would probably be easiest this morning, since we don't have it on the screen, is uh, just read the whole thing congregationally aloud with me, and we'll, we'll stop at the end of verse 5. And then I'm going to back us up a, a kind of a special introductory message this morning. So can I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word? So we're in the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Ready? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you again for the safety, the sanctity, the the opportunity that we have as believers this morning to gather, to open this inerrant, authoritative, and inspired word, to ask you to open our hearts that we might receive what you have for us, for we are here to hear from you. And we trust that you will speak, Lord, that we will listen. We will know what the Spirit is saying to the church. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I mentioned a moment ago, uh, this morning we are dedicating the morning to introducing uh, the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to spend our time in the first two verses uh, as a platform for this introduction. But when we go through the book in the weeks and the months ahead, uh, we'll be referencing back to some of these items that we are introducing to you. So uh, I hope that perhaps you'll take some notes. We have Note-taking opportunity on the back of your bulletin this morning. Pull out a pencil, pen. Uh, perhaps you want to take some notes in your Bible, whichever you would like to do. But we notice that Peter begins this epistle 
the first of his two, uh, in verse 1, saying that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is true is that he is not just an apostle, but Peter was a very influential person in the early church. As the author, the first Christians would have noticed that this is from Peter and they would have sensed it as an important letter, a letter of authority, because other letters were circulating. At this same time, we, uh, history tells us it's around 67 AD that it was written. It was a time of Nero uh, persecuting Christians and other letters were circulating. We have the letter of Clement of Rome to Corinth, uh, the letters of Barnabas, the letters of Ignatius, the letters of Polycarp. And this letter would have been received as a letter of authority and a letter of importance. Now, those other letters that I mentioned, they, they did not make their way into canonization. And there is a, a God-divine purpose for that. If you're interested in how we got this Bible that you hold in front of you and how you can know that it is authoritative, it is inerrant, and it is inspired, I would recommend that you pick up a copy of the General Introduction to the Bible by Norman Geisler. And the section in there on canonicity will convince you that these books that we have called canon are in fact the inspired word of God. The theme of Peter's book, his first epistle, really is to encourage believers that are facing uh, persecution because there is much going on under the rule and reign of Nero. There are some alarmingly interesting facts about Peter himself. Uh, I'll share some of them with you. Peter's name is mentioned more in the Gospels than any other. No one speaks in the Gospels as often as Peter did. Jesus spoke more often of Peter than he did any other individual. Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. Peter confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple. And at the same time, Peter denied Jesus more forcibly and publicly than any other disciple. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple. And Jesus addressed Peter alone as Satan among the disciples. Further, we know that in biblical history... Uh, it was Peter who told the other disciples, let's go find him and tell him what he should do. It was Peter who followed Jesus' command to cast out the nets and pull up a catch. It was Peter, of course, who stepped out of the boat in the middle of a storm, Matthew 14. And it was Peter, of course, who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words 
of eternal life, John 6. And it is true that there are more. It was Peter, along with James and John, who ran to the tomb. It was also Peter, I'm sorry, it wasn't running to the tomb. It was Peter with James and John who saw Jesus transfigured. Matthew 17, it was Peter who was the one who asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven, to which Jesus responded, no, seven times 70, Matthew 18. Peter was the one who insisted that Jesus would not wash his feet. And then he commanded Jesus to wash his whole body, John 13. Peter heard Jesus predict that he would deny him three times in Matthew 26. And yet it was Peter who said, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. The rest of the disciples agreed. Peter was the one who cut off the right ear of, who was it in the garden? Malchus, right? The servant of the high priest, when the soldiers came to arrest him, John 18. Peter was the one who ran to the tomb with James. I'm sorry. Ran to the tomb. One more note here. Peter was the one who received a personal visit from the resurrected Christ uh, on the day of his resurrection, Luke 24. Bunch of notes. There are more, and I encourage you to kind of flip through your Gospels and find them. But what is significant this morning about Peter is that he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that is significant. Uh, Mostly because that phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is attached to no, no other person in the Gospels, and in the letters. You see, we don't have teachers of Jesus Christ, prophets of Jesus Christ, evangelists of Jesus Christ. We only have apostles of Jesus Christ. The original word, apostolos, one who is sent out. And it is true that the office of an apostle no longer exists at That took place in the formation of the church with the 12. But the function of an apostle still exists very clearly. One who is sent out to share and preach and teach the gospel. Don't confuse the the reference to an office with the reference to a function or a role. The same thing is true uh, with the offices of elders, bishops and deacons. Today in the New Testament, though we do not uh, acknowledge the office of an apostle, we acknowledge the function or the role of someone who is called out. We also acknowledge the offices of elders, bishops, and deacons. The word elder, presbyteros, often you uh, find that happening in the denomination of Presbyterian. The office of a bishop, episkopos, also reflected in the denomination of Episcopalians. 
We have elders here in the church. They're listed on your bulletin. We have a deacon here in the church, diakonos, one who serves. But we do have a function and a role known as the pastor. And that would be yours truly. Though the office does not exist, the role and the function of a senior pastor does exist in the church. And thankfully, that role is uh, an under-shepherd, one who cares for the flock of God, to feed the flock of God, and to care for the flock of God as his own. And Peter addresses his readership as an apostle. A little later on in that same first verse, he says that he is writing to the pilgrims. You'll notice it there. Another letter that was circulating, the Christian writing of the epistle to Diogenes, gives the idea of what the pilgrims of that day were, but you'll find that it correlates with Christians today. I'll quote, Pilgrims, they inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents of it. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land is their foreign land. They pass their days upon this earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. You see, pilgrims. And wouldn't we identify that? This, this native land is a foreign land to us. This foreign land is where we've been born and live. And we pass our days here on this earth recognizing that it's not our home, it's not our final place, our citizenship is in heaven. Can I get an amen? amen? So he writes to these pilgrims, and he, alongside of this, includes that they are the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, Peter saw all believers, both Gentile and Hebrew, as being dispersed throughout the regions that he mentions. There was the uh, first dispersion at the fall of Jerusalem uh, that took place where Christians were spread out through all of Asia Minor that we know it. And it is very possible that these regions that he mentions there in verse 1 was the route upon which the one carrying the letter that he would take. So he's writing to pilgrims that have been dispersed throughout the land. And we come to the second verse where he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now this opening uh, statement here in verse 2 can often launch... Uh, many believers into what I will call a classic discussion or a classic debate that is over 400 years old. You might want to mark that. The discussion is uh, comprised of two terms, 
One is called Calvinism. The other is called Arminianism. And Calvinism uh, embraces election and predestination where Arminianism embraces man's free will. And I'd like to give you a little bit of background and understanding of both of them uh, before we move on. We will move on. Calvinism originated with the Reformation in Switzerland under Huldrych Zwingli when he began to preach uh, the first form of what we know to be Reformed doctrine, around 1519. But the belief system of Calvinism was hurled forward by none other than John Calvin. Uh, back to Zwingli, he and Martin Luther had a, a great divide on whether or not the presence of Christ was in the Eucharist. And because of that split, there was a divide between Calvinists and Lutherans. And that division uh, formed what we know to be the Protestant Church. Under the leadership of John Knox, the Reformed Church in Scotland itself continued uh, to embrace Calvinist teaching. During the Reformation, Calvinism was the primary Protestant faith in Belgium, but it was eradicated in favor of the Counter-Reformation. Germany remained predominantly Lutheran in the 16th century, but Reformed worship was promoted intermittently in the churches. I'll get to some specifics about the belief system of Calvinism, but first an explanation of Arminianism. Arminianism is a branch of Protestant or Protestantism initiated in the early 16th century based on the theological ideas of a Dutch Reformed theologian named Jacobus Arminius. And he had supporters in his day. They were known as remonstrants. And Dutch Arminianism was originally articulated uh, in 1610. A theological statement was written in an attempt, listen, to moderate the doctrines of Calvinism related to its interpretation of predestination. That's a lot of big words. But as I said, Calvinism embraces election and predestination. Arminianism embraces man's free will. And both belief systems can be most easily grabbed onto this morning, a lot of info, by what we will call acronyms. Remember what an acronym is? It's a letter that represents a word. I'll begin with Calvinism. The acronym that represents their belief system is the word TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Each letter stands for a, a pillar of their, found, of their belief system. T stands for total depravity, that man is totally depraved apart from God and cannot call upon God. U stands for unconditional election. Now, I, I had some problem with the uh, internet this morning. Otherwise, I would have had a, 
a clear outline for you, but I can give you some verses. Total depravity, Genesis 6, Romans 3, 10 through 18. Unconditional election means that God elects who is going to be saved. Unconditional, it's up to God and God alone, and he, he elects predestination and election who is going to be saved Romans 8 29 through 30 Ephesians 1 4 through 6 L stands for limited atonement in other words Jesus did not die for the entire human race he did not die for everyone he only died to atone for those who are going to be saved based on God's election. Matthew 1.21, John 17.9, Ephesians 5.25. The I stands for irresistible grace. That a man or a woman or a young person who is going to be saved based on God's election cannot resist God's grace when it comes upon them. It is irresistible. John 6.37 and 44, John 10.16. The last letter, P, stands for the perseverance of the saints. That the saint who has found himself elected by God, was unable to resist the grace of God, will always remain saved. They will persevere and never be taken out of the hand of God for eternity. John 10. 27 through 29, Romans 8, 29 through 30, another uh, reference there, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Now, I know it's a mouthful, but what's often true is that uh, they are known as four-point Calvinists because they reject the idea of limited atonement. A four-point Calvinist will reject the idea that Jesus didn't die for everybody. John 1.29, John, uh, John 3.16, familiar, for God so loved the world, the world, everyone in the world, that he, begave, that he gave his only begotten son. 1 Timothy 2.6, 2 Peter 2.1. Five-point Calvinism, four-point Calvinism. Let's move on to Arminianism. Arminianism also has a, a five-point acronym, that can help describe the pillars of their belief system. The acronym doesn't say a word, but if you're writing it down, it is P-C-U-R-C. Okay, did you get that? P-C-U-R-C. And let me explain what their embrace is. The P stands for partial depravity. That mankind, yes, is, is depraved apart from God, but, but partially depraved because mankind can call out to God. But in order for mankind to call out to God, he must be introduced to something called prevenient grace. What do we mean by prevenient grace? That God extends a prevenient grace to an individual so that they can call upon the Lord. When such grace is given, human free will responds to the gospel and is therefore taken 
by the Holy Spirit to believe the gospel and saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Partial depravity. Secondly, the C stands for conditional election. That God's choice is based on his foreknowledge of how a man, woman, or young person is going to respond to the gospel once prevenient grace is given. And based on that knowledge, his election is conditional based on how mankind is going to, in his free will, respond to the offer of eternal life. Romans 8, read through it. The U stands for unlimited atonement, uh, the opposite of limited atonement, unlimited atonement, uh, that Christ died for all mankind and that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The R in the acronym for Arminianism stands for resistible grace. Instead of, instead of irresistible, it's resistible. In other words, that God's offer can be ignored. It can be rejected. God's wooing can be cast aside because of mankind's free will. Now, interestingly enough, as Peter was talking to religious leaders of his day, Christ has been crucified, died, buried, resurrected. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And what is Peter saying to even specifically religious leaders? He's saying, you stiff-necked, you always do resist the Holy Spirit. John 6, 18. When the Spirit of God comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. That the Spirit of God will bring the conviction, but man has a free will to either respond or reject. Lastly, the C in P-C-U-R-C stands for conditional salvation under Arminianism. And what conditional salvation uh, in their embraced belief system means, I can summarize it in two words, uh, must be maintained to retain, right? That your salvation must be maintained by evidenced works of the Lord active in your life in order to retain your salvation. And what's true also about Arminius is that many of them reject this particular point in the belief system that one's salvation isn't kept by human effort. You can say you're glad to hear that, but you can read just a little bit further on in this letter that we're in, and we read it this morning. I'll draw your attention again to verse 5 that says, regarding salvation and those who are saved, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, 
ready to be revealed in the last time. Summary statement before we move on. Is, uh, David Guzik reminds us that God's choosing is not random or uninformed, but according to his omniscience, his all-knowing. And the foreknowledge includes prior knowledge of our response to the gospel, but is not solely dependent upon it. Though God's election is according to his foreknowledge, there is more to his foreknowledge than his prior knowledge of my response to Jesus. Election is not election at all if it is only a cause and effect arrangement basing God's choice on man's choice. Now here's, here's what you can take to the bank. As I take it to the bank all the time. Is that both systems of belief have problems. And both systems of belief, why do they have problems? Because they do not adequately explain the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of mankind. They do a good job of trying to reach to that mark of, of explaining it, but they fall short of adequately explaining something that is divine, something that is supernatural, something that is in the heart of God that only God can fully understand. Did you choose to get saved? Or did God choose you to be saved? Answer, yes. And he moves on, Peter does, as he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice what he says next. He says, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience. A couple of important words there. Sanctification, what is that? Well, simply stated, it is to be set apart. Um, that's what the, the definition means. And it is, it is God. You can debate. Remember, I told you that discussion and debate is over 400 years old. You can continue that debate if you want, but the bottom line, if once saved, always saved, if truly saved, you can say, well, what for is that God sets you apart. He has reached into your life, caused you to be set apart from the unbelieving world. And it's God who does that. So that you don't think as the world thinks. Do as the unbelieving world does. Or see the lost unregenerated world as the lost unregenerated world sees the rest of humanity. He sets you apart. He transforms you. Why? Or for what purpose? For obedience... 
To obey means what? Oh, I love this. This classic example that we find in uh, 1 Samuel 15. You recall, as Samuel was dealing with the first king of Israel, who was told to completely annihilate the Amalekites. And he did partially what the prophet Samuel told him to do, but when Samuel came to him after the event was over, Samuel heard sheep that uh, Saul had not destroyed. You recall the event. uh, Samuel walks up to Saul and Saul says, I have done, bless the Lord, I've done everything that you've asked of me. I've done everything the Lord has wanted. And Samuel says, well, why do I hear sheep? And he says, oh, 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 don't mind that. We kept some of those to sacrifice to your God. He doesn't say to his God. To your God. We we kept some of those because we're going to sacrifice them. It's a classic, real-life truth that man, in order to serve God, will often look at sacrifice instead of obedience as being equal. And they're not. Remember what Samuel said to him? For Samuel 15.22, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To hear his voice speak to you and to respond in an obedient way. He's not asking you or I to, well, let me ignore that and I'll go, you know, I'll go to church more, or I'll pray more, or I'll read my Bible more, or I'll do good works more. No, if you hear his voice and it's saying to follow his instruction, Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me to hear his voice and obey. In sanctification of the spirit for obedience, Last phrase, though, and here's what's ultimately important. Because when we get to the subject of obedience, maybe every one of us this morning goes, ooh, ooh, yeah, I, I, I try to be, I, I'm close, you know, I've got a lot of it going on. Maybe, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but certainly in my heart, uh, I know that to be true. Because, listen, even in our best efforts to be faithfully obedient, we fall short. Amen? Okay, even in our best efforts to be faithfully obedient, we fall short. Therefore, there is a need for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter recognizes that. And he knows that. Ephesians 2.3 tells us that you who were once far off are brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
And Peter knows that he is addressing a, a new, you know, the church when it, in its inception, it was birthed. It's an organism. It's alive. It's growing. It's shaping. It's morphing. And the church, you and I, we don't come to church. We are the church. And you and I are to be a living organism that, that shapes and morphs. I hope you know that concept deeply in your soul. That coming through those doors is not a check mark that now I'm close to God, but rather us coming together in, in a, a living body is the expression of what was breathed at Pentecost. The church was birthed, it was born. And Peter knows he's addressing a, a, a newly shaped and formed, you know, body of believers that have been dispersed throughout many different areas in Asia Minor. And so he employs two words in that latter portion of verse 2 that he knows will address all. He says, grace, a Gentile greeting, and peace, a Hebrew greeting, To you be multiplied. Because Peter knows. Oh, he would know it so well. Oh my goodness. Peter knows that it, it must always come back to grace. Not a system of belief. And, and I, you know, I want to just admonish us today is that you may hold one view or another but if one view versus another causes division within the body of Christ, then that is not what is intended by any belief system. God would have us to be one. And the oneness that, that is found and necessary in every body of believers, both locally and, and globally, I don't like that word very much, but you know, throughout the entire earth, is grace unmerited favor of God. It always comes back to grace. And peace. The peace of God. Available only, really, in the New Testament sense from the inception of the birth of the church until Jesus comes back, we cannot know the peace of God unless we first have experienced the grace of God. His unmerited favor, which brings us into a living, breathing relationship with a resurrected Savior who in endows us with and breathes into us by the person of the Holy Spirit the peace of God because we've been the recipient of his grace. Are you the recipient of his grace this morning? Have you sought to earn his favor 
or your salvation? Would you not rather simply know that it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace. I will say to you once again, as I said before, don't ever try to be a better Christian. <laughs> you ever met someone, oh, I'm, I'm trying to be a better Christian. It's a phrase we all have used and maybe used. Maybe you said it today. I don't know. But you are not a better Christian. The fact of the matter is that you are filthy, depraved. You are apart from God except for his grace. And when you're brought into his grace, he then sheds the blood of his only begotten son has been shed for you. And God looks through the this nail-scarred hands and the feet of Jesus and sees the blood on your life. And he says, righteous, received, grace upon grace. Walk in that grace, church. Don't get stuck in the debates of what system of belief. Please, walk in the grace of God. Because a sentence after Ephesians 2.8 and 9 tells us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. I want you to turn there because we're going to use this as a closing. I don't have a clock in front of me. Turn to Ephesians 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, that's how I find it. Ephesians 2. Eight and nine. We're all there. Pretty close. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. Verse 10. Very important verse. Very goes all. They're connected. For we. That's every human being that has been brought into the body of Christ. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I, in my Bible, I have underlined should walk in them because Note, once again, remember, this is an inspired, authoritative, it is the, the, the final uh, word for faith and conduct in the life of every, every Christian. And notice that he says that we should walk in them. He does not say the Spirit of God, when this was written, did not say that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we will walk in them. 
that we might walk in them, that we can walk in them. No, the, the Holy Spirit of God uses the word should. Why? Because you and I have a free will. And we can choose not to, even as it relates to that 400-year-old discussion about Calvinism versus Arminianism and predestination and election versus free will. Okay, let's just set all that over here for a moment and for just a few seconds believe that everybody in this room and you who are watching at home is saved by the grace of God. Okay, in that grace, you, you still have a free will. Every day you have a choice to make of who you will give your whole heart to. Every day you have the opportunity to say, Lord, my free will, in my free will, I choose to give my heart and my life to you. Take me, do with me what you will, because you've created good works before I was even on the planet so that I should walk in those good works. And then as, as you hear his voice, good, well done, my servant. And you're walking in those ways in which God wants you to walk. Then you can read that verse parenthetically that says, good works that I will walk in them. Will you choose to walk in his grace today? Will you choose to walk in the good works which he has prepared beforehand for you and for me in the weeks, the months to come? Will you choose to do so in this life? Grace. It's all about grace. It's not about performance. It's about grace. Remember I referred to God not willing that any should perish? That comes to us from Peter's second letter, he says that God is not willing, he's not slack concerning his promise of returning, as some would consider slackness. In other words, well, why isn't the Lord coming back? Sure, it's taking a long time, but he is long-suffering, waiting, waiting, waiting for others who have yet to come into this world, babies that are being born right now, right this very second, adolescents and teens and adults who are hearing the gospel for the first time right now and they're responding in faith. God is waiting, waiting, waiting because he's not willing that any should perish. After all, he waited for you and me. And so should we not be patient and while we're patient, choose to walk in grace toward others. Who have you not been gracious to this past week? Who is it that you got angry with or tired or frustrated with because they're just not doing it the way you want them to do it? 
grace should be a hallmark of our expression toward others because we have received much grace. Will you choose to walk in grace in this week ahead of you? Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for bringing us as a fellowship to this first epistle of your servant, Peter. Knowing that it is a letter of depth that speaks to many things, many things within the Christian's life. And this morning, Lord, we've been reminded of your grace. Those of us who affirm that we are saved, that Christ has rescued us and redeemed us, Lord, we we just bask in the joy and the glory of that. Why try to figure it out? Why not just walk in it? And this morning, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you're praying, if you have yet to receive Christ, I ask you right now, simply, you can do it right where you are. You can say, Lord, I I see that I've been rejecting and resisting. And right now, you're wooing and offering and and calling to me to come. If, If you're here in this room or you're watching at home and that's you, at home you can acknowledge any way you want right here. Just slip up your hand. Pray for you. Anyone at all. Anyone at all. Lord, you know every heart of ours here. And you have been gracious to us. As we close our time in your word, we close it by saying thank you. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the love of the cross. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the grace that is ours. Thank you for your patience with us. We ask you, Lord, to continue to complete that good work which you have begun. We will surrender and surrender and surrender again. For it is in Jesus' name that we ask it.